All right. Well, our next question comes from Lawrence, and it's concerning reincarnation, past life regression, and the afterlife. Um, he asks, will reincarnation ever become a main part of America's culture? Are we going to evolve to the point where reincarnation is understood very well by the majority of the population? Will we ever enter a phase in our evolution when we look at death and society totally different that we did, than we do now? Sure, we will. But now the big question is, well, how long <laughs> before that happens? Say, well, yes, we will get there because that's basically, you know, that's, that's the truth. That's the way the world works. Uh, at least that's my, you know, I say it that way, like that's a fact. That's, that's my, the, you know, the, what do we call it? The theory. That's my a model of how reality works. And my model, it seems to be pretty coherent. And I think it probably has a fairly good probability of, of being the way it is because it fits so many data points and I can't find data points that doesn't fit. So given that, that, that model, given that my model is right, then the answer would be, Yes, we'll get there because we are evolving and we are making progress slowly. And that one day we will see the bigger picture and all of that will come to pass. And will that take 20 years or will that take a thousand years or 2000 years? That is an unknown. It's hard to say. We have free will. We could in another decade, you know, bomb the planet, you know, back to the Stone Age, as they say, you know, we may have to start over. It may be another 10,000 years after that before we even get back to where we are now. Who knows? We have free will. We could do any of that sort of things. So putting a time stamp on it is very problematical. How quickly could that happen? Well, we could have a major cultural change in probably a decade would be possible. Unlikely but possible because now we have an internet that plugs in, you know, a huge part of the world population now can communicate with each other. So we can make changes more quickly, social changes and intellectual changes much more quickly than we ever could before. So yeah, in a decade or two, everything could be totally different because we're in the internet age where things move fast, faster than they ever moved before. You know, people are, connected now and information can travel wide and wide and deep very quickly and it never has before so it could happen in a couple of decades it could happen in a couple of millennia <laughs> you know it's it's really hard to say it depends on our choices where we go with it and uh, you know what people make of it and it's, I think it's very difficult probably foolish to to predict you know the timeline because there's seven and a half billion of us, each with free will, and it's hard to tell where that that bunch of choice making will will end us up. Well, Tom Lawrence also asks. I mean, you and I are both familiar with Dr. Brian Weiss. He does a lot of wonderful work in past life regression. And Lawrence asks, is that a is that a good way for someone who wants to gain some information on who they were in the past? I know you'll probably say that's not the really important thing, but could they gain some useful information on a past life regression? Well, you pegged me pretty close there, uh, Lawrence. Uh, that's indeed what I would uh, what I would say. It's not the main course, and it's not uh, you know something that you would probably want to dedicate your life to. But could you get some in, some significant information? Sure, absolutely. 
just the fact of doing it and the time it takes to do it and the effort it takes to do it would be helpful just because it's practice. And if you get that information uh, that's useful to you, if it's, if it's meaningful, do it. You know, if you work at it for a while and you don't get anything that, um, that you really feel is helpful, interesting, you know, there's no value in it, then let it go. But sure, go, you can explore that. It's not like you should stay away from it because that's not the main thing. Go explore anything that interests you because just because it interests you, it will help you gain experience. We do the things we're interested in. The things we aren't interested in, we just can't make ourselves do. So find something you're interested in and that will be a key for you to get more experience and you'll, your interests over time will change. So it doesn't really matter where you start and what interest drags you into this experience or way of looking at reality. Whatever it is, it's just a beginning. It will change. So you don't feel like, I'm, I'm thinking maybe you're worrying, well, if I go do that, am I really working on something that's suboptimal that isn't really where I should be spending my time? And the answer is no, don't look at it that way. If that's where your interest lies, go do it. Because that'll just be a first step gone to someplace else and we take our first steps in places that interest us and if it doesn't interest us we don't take first steps at all we just sit on the sidelines so follow your interest go go look at past lives and see if you find something that uh, is interesting you probably will find something that's interesting well, Lawrence also asks, and Lawrence, you can add to this if, if you like, uh, when we pass from physical matter reality into the afterlife, do, and we understand what happens during death in the process, um, are you more likely to retain more of the qualities of who you were and have con more control over the afterlife experience? Well, yes, you, you, you do. If you come there, you know, frantic, and in high anxiety, then your experience is going to be very different if you come there with, with experience and knowledge of what you're doing and why you're there and what's going on in the process. So, you know, there'd be two totally different experiences. So, yes, if you come with knowledge and understanding, then your stress level is down, your ego uh, and fear are down, you're more paying attention. Uh, the process is a lot shorter and a lot more efficient that way. You don't uh, have to go through all of the all the hand holding to get you to relax and let go and and uh, that sort of thing. So sure, it makes a difference. Now, do you get to retain more? Well, in a way, you do because you're you're kind of aware of the process. You know what's going on all along, and next time you recycle you'll be aware too. So you sort of gain that because now you're, you're out of the, you know, you're out of the cycle of coming in, you know, scared to death and not knowing what's going on. And then, you know, and, and uh, having to go through the, the processes of relaxing and letting go. So sure. It's you, the more, the more you understand the system, the more you see it um, and aren't just caught up with it, but you actually understand it and are cooperating with it. It's not just a river that's just whisking you away to wherever it takes you, but rather you understand that it's a river and you're swimming along with it, you know, that kind of thing. 
it makes everything easier and more efficient. So you, you get to where you're going faster. You know, it boils down to this, the more you know, the easier it is to know more. But, uh, knowledge helps you find and understand more knowledge. You can't take calculus until after you've had arithmetic and algebra. You know, you gotta, you just take stuff and the more you know, the easier it is to know more. Yeah, it's, it's helpful. You learn and you remember better the more you, uh, the more you understand. But now that understanding has to be at a being level, not at an intellectual level. Understanding in the intellectual level doesn't buy you much because that's really not who you are. That's just your image. And that image disappears when you cycle to another lifetime. That, that image you had of yourself is gone. So if it's just in your intellect, then not so much. If it's at a being level, you take it all with you. Thank you. I was wondering, thanks, Tom. <clears throat> I was wondering if um, when, when someone, so the, the idea of reincarnation it's just a theory now until we can actually really prove it to, to be true. So it's not really a fact yet until we were able to, to prove it to be a fact. No, you know, it's not really like that. Proof is not the issue. There's almost nothing you can prove. If you try to say, what are the things, what are the things in my life I can prove? And you'll probably find that, that all the things in your life that you can prove are trivial. Anything really meaningful and significant in your life, you really can't prove it at all. Uh, I, I give some examples. You can't you can't prove who your parents were. Yeah, I know you grew up with them, and uh, they called you know they called you son, and uh, you called them mom and dad, and you have a birth certificate, and it's got your name on it, it's got their names on it, but you know it's just name on a piece of paper. How do you, you know a mistake wasn't made? How can you prove that? They're actually your parents. Well, you take a DNA test. Well, the DNA test says you could be their child, but not necessarily because DNA only gives you broad categories. It does every individual isn't marked as an individual. You marked as a as a subcategory in your DNA. You shared DNA that's similar to other people's DNA, and and uh, your parents aren't the only ones that uh, maybe could have birthed you. It'd have to be somebody that had a lot of their genetics uh, that were similar. But you never can prove anything. You see, something that's just as basic as that is, you know, who were my parents? You know, that's, we, we just, you can't prove it. There's always some uncertainty. So we don't have facts. And that's part of the way we, well, I said we do have facts. You know, we do have things, but most of them are not important. They're fairly trivial. We have facts about our rule set. If I hold up this pencil and I let it go, I know which way it'll fall. You know, it won't go off to the side. It won't go up. You know, it'll go down. I know that because that's the way our rule set works. So that's a fact. But that's kind of a trivial fact. And when we're talking about our lives and our growth, you know, and becoming love, you know, whether which way the pencil goes, it's kind of trivial. So if you talk about big things, you can't prove any of them. So we don't have to wait until reincarnation is proved. It's already proved in the sense that we have data that supports it. You know, um, Donna just talked about, uh, you know, uh, a, uh, oh, his name escapes me, Donna. Who's the past life guy? Brian, Brian Weiss, right? Yeah, Brian Weiss. 
you know, and there's Brian is just one of dozens who have done research with reincarnations and have found lots of information that suggests, if you will, not proves, lots of information that gives you a, a pretty high confidence that indeed these people they're talking to did, you know, have these other lives because they come back with facts and information that otherwise they wouldn't have been able to have. So that's been done over and over hundreds and hundreds of times. It's not uh, that there's just not any information out there. There's plenty of information out there. Most of us choose to ignore it because it doesn't feed our beliefs. Anything that doesn't resonate with our beliefs, we dismiss. The stuff that does resonate with our beliefs, we accept as truth. And that's just the way we are. So most people in our culture say reincarnation, uh, isn't that some kind of Eastern thing? You know, isn't that what the Buddhists believe or the, the Hindus? You know, that's not us. We're not like that in America. You see, it's not their belief, so they don't associate with it. So they reject it because, you know, you give them something that's part of our culture, which would be in religion, that would probably be Christianity is the major part of our culture. And um, you toss out some facts there and uh, that, absolutely. That's just the way it is. You see, that's truth. So that's just the way people are. They reject anything that, that doesn't, you know, isn't in consonance with their beliefs. So it's not a matter of having more data and more proof. There's plenty of data and proof now if people would read it and, and accept it, uh, you know, would look at it open-mindedly. It's that you have to have people change their beliefs is what has to happen. People have to get skeptical but open-minded. Skepticism is great, but you have to be open-minded as well as skeptical. And then it's not I, whether I believe it or not, it's what's the probability of this being true? <coughs> so if you read Brian Weiss's work and the work of others like Brian, you probably come to a probability, well, it looks like maybe it's 0 0.8, 0.9% being true, because we've got a lot of facts here, but Maybe not. I really don't know Brian individually. You see, I, I haven't lived with him and I don't know him personally. And maybe under that real nice guy who's very professional and academic, you know, there lies, a, you know, a madman who wants to make up data and fool us all. Well, I give that maybe 100 to 1 percent because, you know, you have a, you get a feel for him and you say, well, that's not really the way it comes across. He'd be a really good man, you know, hiding all of this madness if, if that's the way he was. And. So you're just taking all the information you can and you come up with a probability. Well, let's say you say it's 60% or 70%. Well, that's okay. You're being open-minded. And as more information comes in and you get similar information from other authors and other people, and then maybe you have some in your own family or some of your own in your own past lives, and eh, it goes up to 80% and 90%. See? And then they, they catch some fraud who was, uh, you know, doing something else. Now it goes back down to 70%. <laughs> That's okay. As data comes in, your, your skepticism and your open mindedness works on that data and it gives you some kind of percent of probability that the information is accurate. That's what we have to live with. People don't like to live with uncertainty, so they jump to conclusions and have beliefs. If they, were, if they could live with uncertainty, they just accept that that they don't know for sure it's a 70 or 80 or 90 or 99 percent and that's good enough it could be wrong you know more data will come in later 
that's where we hope to get to. So that's what we need to get to, not not more facts or, or uh, more people believe in it. We just have more people being open-minded, consider it, and come to some kind of opinion about it rather than just shutting out data because it's not part of their belief. That's the real critical change here that we have to come to. That's what I was wondering because I was thinking, you know, if you can't, if, if, if one can't prove reincarnation, then isn't it just a belief like everything else? Like, so for instance, you know, we can, we can prove electricity. You know, we say that, you know, electricity exists and our probability that electricity exists is about a hundred percent, you know, because we can experience it and we can interact with it and stuff like that. So I was just wondering, is reincarnation, is reincarnation something that can be proved like that? Or is it more so like, there's plenty of people who have experiences. There's probably more people. Well, I shouldn't say that. There's a lot of people that have experiences with, you know, reincarnation, with data, with information. And to them, it's probably more real than electricity. We could look at electricity and say that, well, I don't know about electricity. Do we really have electricity? Yeah, we have the effects of a thing we call electricity. Yeah, we have the effects. We flip the switch and the lights go on. That's an effect. And I certainly do think it's a fact that the lights went on when I flipped the switch. But is that really electricity? I mean, have you ever held any electricity in your hand? Have you ever smelled it? Did you take a taste of it? I mean, what sort of, you know, what sort of data do you have about electricity actually existing? You know, all you have is that you flip the switch and a light goes on and somebody told you that the reason the light went on was because of electricity and you believed them. You see, so that's we know the we know the effects of electric of a thing we call electricity. But what is electricity? Now, you go ask a physicist and you ask him 60 years ago and they would have told you that it was little positive charges moving around. And then we found out that, whoops, there aren't really any really positive charges moving around. it's really negative charges and they're called electrons and they're moving around. Oh, that positive current now is a negative current, but that doesn't matter. You just change the sign because the math all works out the same way. And then now it's these electrons moving around and that's electricity. And then another decade goes by and they say, well, you know, there really aren't any electrons. It's just these probability distributions. You know, electron doesn't exist. It's not a little chunk of mass with charge running through a wire. It's just, uh, we just measure the effects and we make up things that explain the effects and electricity is one of those things we made up to explain the effects. And does it really exist? You see, we can walk down that same path. Show me some electricity. Lay some on my desktop here so I can look at it. And you can't do it. All you can do is show me that you flip the switch and the lights come on. Well, that's an effect. That's not electricity. So does electricity exist or is that just a model that we made up to explain a bunch of effects. And it's not really like that because these little positive charges turned into negative charges, turned into electrons, turned into probability distributions. Now you're telling me electricity is a probability distribution? No. Huh? See, that doesn't make any sense. It's a bunch of probability distributions all running down through a wire. What are probability distributions running around in a wire for? Well, wires are conductor and probability distributions like conductors. No, you see, quantum mechanics kind of took a lot of those things that we thought were hard and physical and sure and made turned them into probability. 
So that's just, we make measurements. We take a battery, we create a potential, and we see that when we do, something happens, right? We can hook a wire here and a wire here, and then we notice that a, that a magnetic field exists around the wire when the current's running through it because we can see all the little iron filings you know, move around in a pattern that goes in circles around the wire. And we make up things like electricity and magnetic fields and electric fields and electromagnetic waves. We make them up as models to explain our effects. The effects are real. The models, stuff we make up to explain the effects. They're just models. You see, so electricity, like an electron, is a model. And the models, you can't believe in too much because we believed in electrons being little massy things and now we realize they're not like that, you see? So the models change and they get less and less physical the more you find out about them and the deeper you dig. So, um, you know, I would say that past lives, you know, you have to think of that too as a model. Okay, somebody had experiences. A little boy who's you know six years old or something. He says he was an airplane pilot in World War One or something, and he flew this kind of plane. And here was the serial number, and you know, here was the battle he was in, and he got shot down over this place. And he names a couple of people he was with. And you go back in history, and you find there was a plane of that make and that serial number, and these people did exist, and that battle existed. And how did the six-year-old know that? Because he's never studied that in school. He's still drunk pictures and coloring them in, you know, he's only six years old. So you have these kinds of things and then we make a model and the model is, well, we have reincarnation and we have past lives and that's what makes this make sense. Otherwise, how did this kid just grab this information? You know, how did he know that? Well, maybe he just got it out of the database, you see. So past life is another model. Now in my system, in order for my system to work, I need consciousness to evolve, right? Consciousness is a thing that he has to evolve. Well, how does it evolve? It has to lower its entropy. That's just the nature of an information system. How can it do that? Well, we find out that because of the nature of consciousness as things that communicate, this is a communication system with a lot of individual chunks of things communicating. It's a social system. How do social systems lower their entropy? Now we get the love, right? Cooperation and all that kind of stuff. Well, how do you become love and cooperation? Well, you have free will. That's what it means to be a, you know, a consciousness. You have free will, you make choices. So how do we make choices to become that? And it becomes obvious that you're not gonna do this in a vacuum. You're not going to make choices and become love sitting in a cave by yourself or sitting in a chat room that you need experience. You need interaction, you see. And then you look at the experience and interaction and the choices you get to make and you say, oh, we're not going to do this in a week. We're not going to do this in a day, you know, that, oh, yeah, education, learning is cumulative. Any learning is cumulative. You've got to start someplace. You start with arithmetic, then you, you learn, you, know, you start with adding, then you learn to subtract, then you learn to multiply, then you learn to divide, and you go up through that, and then you learn some algebra, and then you learn some calculus, and then you do differential equations, and then you do integral equations, and you keep going until you, you know, have, all, have the math that you need. But you can't just say, well, I'm only six years old, and I don't know how to add yet, but I want to do integral equations doesn't work. Learning is cumulative. 
Well, if we're learning is cumulative and we learn in our experience in these reality frames, then guess what? Reincarnation is a logical part of this model. You have to have reincarnation or the model doesn't work. And the model could be wrong, right? But it's just a part of the model, a logical necessity of the model that you have reincarnation. But yet the model goes on. See, that's upstream. Further down the model, when you talk about this being the virtual reality that's probabilistic and we have reincarnation to learn and you put all that together, guess what happens? You also can explain double slit experiment and quantum mechanics and why C is a constant and all these other things start to fall out where you do have some connection to this reality. And then you say, well, gee, all these things kind of get answered, all these experiences, all these data points, you know, the, the theory explains them. Then you start thinking, well, gee, maybe this theory has something to it. And now your probability goes from 10%, maybe up to 60%. You see, it's that sort of thing. So they're all just models. It's not a, you know, you never, you almost never get 100%. That's the proof you're looking for. You almost never get to 100%. It's always less than that because you never know what new information you may get later on. So that's kind of the big the big picture there so that's why you know reincarnation is part of this model because learning we have to learn and consciousness has to evolve we have to learn and you can't just jump in learning you have to start at the beginning and it has to be cumulative and iterative and learning something like becoming love which is what consciousness has to learn isn't done quickly and easily so you have to have lifetimes to work on it. So it's just a logical part of the model is why I get to it. And I don't say no, don't believe it, but if the model seems rational to you, then that's a logical part of it. And the model does good science. So if the model can also do science, then it's not just metaphysics, it's physics. And if it's a good physics model, and that's part of its logical process and getting to the point where you do the physics, then that probability might slip up to, you know, 80% or 90%. But you have to say, maybe I get information tomorrow that'll show that all of this isn't necessary, that there's some other way to explain it. That's why you always have that 5 or 10% hanging out there in case you get new information that makes it, you know, a better explanation. So, you know, so there's never going to be much proof. There's always only going to be possibility and probability and then you look at the logic of it and you say does this make sense so that's why i ended up with reincarnation not because i had this thing about reincarnation or i thought you know the the hindus and the buddhists had a really good idea there and i wanted to you know include that it is a logical necessary part of the model and i can't get this i can't get to the end of the model to where i do good physics unless i make all those other logical steps in the process. So that's where the reincarnation comes from. And that's why it's it's not a matter of proving it. It's just a model. And, you know, electrons are a model. Electrons don't really exist. It's little hard pieces of negative charge that run through wires. But we know that if, if I hold a, if I have a, a, a an instrument that measures an electric field, I put it hit this point in space, I can measure electric field here. And I put in this point in space, I measure electric field here, okay? And if I have a wire with a current running through it, 
Well, I can measure maybe electric field in various places in space and I'll get certain answers. Well, what that tells me is that each place in space has information. You see, there's just information exists at this point in space because this is a virtual reality based on information. So I've, I've come to the conclusion that this is a virtual reality and every point in space has some information. And some of that information is what's the electric field strength there? Now I make up this thing, I make up this model called an electromagnetic field that lets me propagate things. Current flows this way, you know, fields go that way, and I, I, I make all this, this model, and the model predicts the value I'm going to get for electric field at this point in space. So I say, well, that's a pretty good model. But what's real is the data at the point in space. It's just calculated in the big computer. It's not that this electric field actually exists. That's just our model that tells us how the data changes in space. That's a part of the rule set. That's part of the logic of the rule set of how the physical reality works, you see. Really, it's a virtual reality, and points in space have information. All sorts of information. That same point in space has a gravitational piece of information. You know, it has an electromagnetic point of information. It's got position information. So there's a bunch of information that goes with that point in space. And basically that's all there is there. The rest of that stuff that we make up, like masses attract for the gravity or um, you know, whatever other model we want to use, those are just models that we make up to explain the fact that information changes in space. That information changes in different points in space, that's a fact. The rest of that are models, and the models can be wrong. And if you start to believe the models that they're that they're absolutely true, then you've just limited yourself from finding out more, like the electron. If you believe the electron is a little chunk of mass, then you'll never get it when quantum mechanics tells you that it's a probability distribution. So it's better not to believe in your models. It's better to give them up. Eh, electron, a little chunk of mass with electric charge. Let's give that 90%. Seems to work. A really good model. Okay, that's fine. And just let it go with that. Live with uncertainty. We don't like uncertainty. Uncertainty frightens us. We don't like not knowing. So we tend to make up stuff and believe in it. And the physicists, scientists do the same thing. They make up all these models and then 20 years, when they made it up, they knew it was a model. 20 years later, it's a fact not a model anymore it's the way it is and it stays that way until something some other measurement you know conflicts with it right that's what i was sort of wondering because um I, that's that's sort of the the idea i was trying to trying to get to is that one day will will reincarnation not just be a model but be a fact so for instance like um i'm not sure if you're um uh, heard about like Roger Penrose and uh, Stuart Hameroff's uh, idea of like how consciousness survives the body. And basically what he was saying in his model, they were saying in their models that, you know, like um, Stuart Hameroff is an anesthesiologist and he's saying that basically like when people are under anest anest uh, the, the, the uh, anesthesia or the, the anesthesia medication, uh, something happens in a micro tubulins and in, inside the neurons of the brain and like basically he's trying to say that um so basically to make a long story short 
he's saying that a part of our quantum self dislocates from it from itself when you're getting anesthesia anesthesia or how i'm not sure really how you say mm -hmm. the term and he's saying that it sort of like temporarily disconnects from like the microtubulins or the microtubulins are collapsing uh uh right. and so like when someone is um off the, the anesthesia, the quantum information goes back into the to the microtubulins and then starts collapsing again. So it just seems to me like is that like the soul or something? You know, so basically like when we pass, do our do the quantum information in our microtubulins basically de detach from the body and it's just kind of like sitting out there in space. And then when it finds another host, it kind of goes into the microtubulins, the, the the quantum information kind of goes into the microtubulins of the of that. The, the the newborn or or the new uh, prototype that you're now using it sort of starts you know giving life to that. No, it's it's not. It doesn't. Well, let's let me put it this way. That's a model. Okay, these micro microtubular things are just models, and the reason they come up with models like that is that consciousness has is is non-local. We know that consciousness can get information that it shouldn't necessarily get in normal ways. So consciousness acts very strangely. Well, quantum mechanics acts very strangely too. Quantum mechanics seems to know things that it shouldn't know either, like which way, which path it should take and so on. And that's not, you know, it's just a way the scientists look at it. So what they do in their minds, they say, well, mind appears to be non-local mind appears to you know have these phenomena the only other thing in our world we know is like that is quantum mechanics quantum effects right things like uh, uh entanglement and so on where one proton spinning up knows that it's you know brother proton just got went from spin down to spin up so it has to go from spin up to spin down how does it know that you see non-local information well because consciousness does that and because quantum effects do that, then scientists have come to this conclusion that consciousness must be a quantum effect. Well, that's not good science or good logic. That's saying like, well, rockets fly and birds fly, therefore birds must be little rockets. You see, just because two things have a characteristic in common doesn't tell you about causality between them at all. So they are trying very hard to come up with a physical model of consciousness, how consciousness is created by the physical body. It's created in quantum effects in microtubules in the brain, you see. It's a theory of consciousness that is based in physical reality. Well, I disagree with that kind of a model. It doesn't uh, that never seems to go very far and they never get very far with it other than making very broad assumptions about this must be the answer because it's the only answer we've got. And they developed some, some uh, theory with it and with that model, but don't take those kind of models very seriously. It's just, they're trying to a model effect and they're doing the best they can with a model that is physical because that's the only thing that makes sense to them. So they're making things up to make them, get the right answers. And it doesn't, you know, from my viewpoint, from my model, from my model, it doesn't work that way at all. That consciousness has nothing to do with microtubules, has nothing to do with quantum effects. 
It's consciousness. Consciousness is fundamental. Physical doesn't create consciousness. Consciousness creates the physical. You see? So it's just two different diametrically opposed ways of looking at it. I guess they were saying like um I don't think that they agree also either with that that uh that that physical parts make up consciousness. I think that that what they're trying to say is like the that maybe at a quantum state that the that the you know so for instance like let's say we all have our individual consciousness but then and that's fundamental consciousness is always fundamental but maybe this has to be something to do with the programming of consciousness like how it evolved in yeah. some sort. Yeah, and if that's the case, then it's a very complex thing that details. That really aren't, you know, it really isn't that important or necessary. You don't have to have a a uh, mechanical structure. If you see this whole thing as a virtual reality, then our physical reality is just computed. You don't need a lot of structure to to explain it. It's just a computation from a rule set. So. You know, I, I don't give that sort of thing much credence. I, I see it more as a desperate attempt to uh, somehow connect quantum mechanics and consciousness. And I don't think that there's really, that the causal error doesn't go that way. The causal error goes the other way it is. Quantum mechanics appears to work the way it works because of consciousness being probabilistic. Quantum mechanics is probabilistic. It's not a, it's not really a, a physical issue and that's really all you need you need you need the reality to be probabilistic and after that quantum mechanics is, a, is an easy shoe in as far as the logic of how of how it works so you don't need microtubules and other kinds of complex physical things to make these connections the connections can be made just very simply without all of that with all that assumption going on but that doesn't mean that people shouldn't work on these models you know hammer off and how to just continue to work on his models and if he can make sense of them sometime to work he can explain a lot more than just how do you relate consciousness to quantum theory then uh, good maybe we'll all learn something so you know it's, it's not that i say that's ridiculous you shouldn't work on it he's working on a you know a different way of looking at the world and if that ever pans out to be useful then i'll be the first to jump on board and use it you see but i don't see it going anywhere useful from my viewpoint, but that doesn't mean it won't. I don't know everything, you see. We have to be open-minded with what people do, but what come with open-minded also comes skeptical, and uh, I don't see that it has a very high probability of ever turning into anything other than conjecture. That's just Tom Campbell's opinion, you know, that's not, uh, you know, that, that's not anything more than that. Okay, our next question is um, to do with an avatar connection. Is the free will awareness unit that goes into the next avatar essentially the same free will awareness unit that was in the previous incarnation, or is the data reintegrated into the individuated unit of consciousness and then that free data sent back out after each incarnation, making the next avatar essentially a new free will awareness unit? Or is it fair to say that the free will awareness unit is the same from one avatar to the next one? Okay. Um, you know, the way I work this model is I, I look at what's necessary, logically necessary to get from point A to point B. Okay, you start at the beginning and then you have to derive it logically. And of course, 
things could often be done more than one way. So the ways that I come up with that explain my model are the ways that seem to me to be the most uh, efficient because systems that evolve tend to be efficient. That's why they evolve that way. If they evolved to be inefficient, they eventually would change and become more efficient because that's what evolution does. So I look at this system, this larger consciousness system, and expect it to be very efficient. So I look at the simplest, most direct way that it can solve a problem, and then that's the way that my theory says that that's the way that problem is probably solved. But the problems can be solved multiple different ways, and sometimes systems do things that are inefficient just because of the process that they go through is, is important. So my my look at this so don't think of tom campbell telling you how reality is in every detail think of tom campbell as coming up with a model and is suggesting logical processes that make sense within that model but these are not the only processes that could take place they're just the ones that tom campbell sees as the most efficient and therefore the most likely from my viewpoint okay so it could be either way to that question it could work in either direction what my sense of it is and what seems most effective to me was the second alternative and that's that when the free will awareness unit is done the body is dead so its connection to that avatar is gone because the avatar no longer is functioning that all that information is absorbed into the individuated unit of consciousness and at that point the next time the uh, that individuated unit of consciousness plans another avatar to get another round of experience in this game. It generates a new avatar, not the old one. It generates a new subset of itself that has no intellectual component. It's just the being level subset of itself. Okay, And that being level then carries all of the that being level carries all the information, all of the growth, all of the learning that's gone on, the being level of all of the incarnations that have ever been done. They all get integrated into this individuated unit of consciousness. Then it takes a piece of itself at the being level, creates another free will awareness unit, and gets back into the game with an immersion to another avatar. Okay, so I don't see any reason why free will awareness units have to maintain some kind of a an identity. Uh, you know, through incarnations or whatever. The, the fundamental integrative function is what we call an individuated unit of consciousness. That's where everything gets integrated. The free will awareness unit is just a subset of that that goes out and has the experience immersively with an avatar. That experience then comes back to the integrative unit that integrates that experience with all the other experience, and then that that entity, that individual unit of consciousness can form up a different avatar because now it's learned from that last incarnation. So it's it's grown a little, it's become a little more like love and it takes a part of the being level and that part of that being level then gets logged in as a connection to this particular avatar. And after that, it starts experiencing the avatar's experience, if you will. It starts getting a data stream that is that is uh, a model of the avatar's sense data if the avatar actually was you know had sense data it's just a computation it's a digital avatar but the computer's computing what it would be seeing smelling hearing and whatever because that's how virtual realities work and that gets sent then to this free will awareness unit. 
So the free will awareness is kind of a temporary vehicle that goes out and collects the information and experience the consciousness that's continually growing and evolving its quality is the individuated unit of consciousness. So that's my take on it because that seems like a much simpler, uh, more uh, parsimonious. That's a computer term that means you do things in the most efficient and simple way that you get them done. You don't take, you know, you don't take the long scenic route. You always take the most direct and most effective route. Uh, you know, it could be the other way, but this way seems to be to be more more likely. All right, thank you. Our next question comes from Ryan. Uh, Ryan, over the past 10 years, has researched dozens of cases of apparitions, hauntings, and closely related phenomenon. Basically, he has caught on tape things, messages seen, that seem like communications. And what he's asking is, is, this, is he really working with the um, spirits of deceased, or could the larger consciousness system just be nudging him with these messages? It's most likely, again, everything's in terms of probability here. It's most likely that the larger consciousness system is nudging him with these experiences. Remember, he's a data, he is a piece of consciousness getting a data stream. He is an individuated unit of consciousness, well, a piece of one called a free will awareness unit. He's getting a data stream. And that data stream is defining the interaction of his avatar with the, with the reality. Now, he could be measuring something out in that reality, but because he's not measuring physical things, he's measuring non-physical things with a physical device. That's a little problematical. And in as much as he's measuring physical things, then you have to wonder how do the physical things get there if their source is non-physical? You see, we have this boundary between the non-physical and the physical and its interaction. How do non-physical things create physical things? And the, you know, how do physical things interact non-physically? Well, there is some interaction between physical and non-physical. That's, that's true. And there can be actually uh, you know, things on his meter. And it, it could be the, the um, larger conscious system giving him information just for his own growth and experience. Or it could be his own intent. He intends to measure something. He wants to measure something. And because he's holding an instrument that has fundamental uncertainty of it, a certain level of noise in the instrument, as all instruments do, he could be causing little signals to occur in the noise based on his intent. Or maybe the people he, he are with, all of them may have some kind of intent to measure something which could cause a little blip of signal uh, just, just above the noise in an instrument that measures. So the sources could be coming from all sorts of things, or there could be a consciousness someplace, some non-physical entity, if you will, that is using its intent to modify a little signal blip in an instrument that he's measuring because the physical instrument has noise, it has uncertainty, therefore that uncertainty can be manipulated to create little false signals that or I shouldn't have false signals, they're real signals, to create little, little signals. All right, so it's, there are multiple ways that he could be getting what he's getting. He could be producing them themselves, they could come from others, or it could be just a larger consciousness system giving him experiences to show him that reality is bigger than it seems. Could be any of the above, it could be a mixture of the above. Uh, most likely, 
it's either things that he and his other companions or other people who know that he does this work or whatever are creating the things that he measures because the things that he measures, my guess is all are just on the edge of uncertainty. He doesn't bend over and pick up a, you know, a non-physical rock. He doesn't have artifacts that are that solid. He has things that are, look at this little signal dither here, right? Uh, you know, just up above the noise. Well, it's a real signal. It's not part of the noise. Where did that come from? You see, it's all stuff that's, he's, he's, his measurements are all in the margins is what I suspect. That's normally the way they are. And those are the ones that are most easily generated by himself and others who are looking for signals because they have an intent to find signals and that intent to find signals can create signals, you know, where there weren't any. Um, or the larger conscious system can create, of course, any kind of signal at once of any magnitude and size. And, and uh, you know, of any, a signal of any size. So could be any and all of those above things happening. They're all possibilities. Okay, our next question is from an MBT forum user on economic and political systems. He has a question relating to units of consciousness and how they evolve under certain circumstances. Since discovering you and your works, I couldn't help my thirst for integrating things into bigger pictures and take it as an opportunity to realize that not only should the effort to increase our quality of consciousness be a personal initiative, but it should be more or less conditioned for us at an early age in our development to give us a head start in putting a focus on lowering our entropy by our socioeconomic environment. Since it's a question related to my field of studies, political science, I was curious if you had any opinion or vision of your own as to how a world where literally all individuals strive for lowering their entropy and reaching a high level of spiritual growth would look like? And what is, in your opinion, the best economic and political system that stimulates humans from an early age to achieve their spiritual goals as the prime goal in their life on a mass planetary scale? Considering the average planetary spiritual level of today, how do you ever see it coming around and being implicate, implemented? Yeah, that's, an and, interesting, that's an interesting question. I'm sorry, did I interrupt you? Is there more to that? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. Uh, it, it's interesting because I just finished writing a, actually it's a chapter in a book on that very subject, oh. or at least a subject very close to that. And I just finished it and turned it in last week. Uh, there's this book being published uh, in a university. Um, let's see, which one is this? I think it's a, uh, one was a U.S. university. This is a German university. And they got in touch with me, and they wanted to me to talk about um, uh, changing, how to change the world. You know, how do, how do we go about doing that? Uh, economic systems and so on. So I wrote a about a 15-page chapter, and I put it up on I, – I put it somewhere, but I'm not sure I'm allowed to do that. I signed a little contract with them, and I think when they go to publish something, they don't want it to have been published anywhere else before before they publish it. So I can't uh, actually put the words up anywhere. Um, I don't believe I can find out more about that, but I think not. It doesn't seem like it would work that way. 
but I can talk about it. That's not a problem. And you're right. Eventually, this change in quality of consciousness is going to reflect in economic systems, social systems, our culture. It's going to reflect in everything. And how people grow up, of course, you've probably heard me say, you know, it's like one, you know, disposing of one fear at a time. We have to get over our fear and that takes courage. We have to want to grow up. So that process has to happen. But let's assume, as you did, that uh, most everybody in the society has been working on growing up for a pretty long time. They're serious with it. They are getting rid of their fears. They're growing and we're kind of a different population now. We are uh, a uh, much more loving, caring, cooperative and compassionate people. Well, what would happen is that our institutions would change with us because our institutions are basically um, you know, created by us. You know, it's we the people are also the people manning those institutions. We're the people that, uh, you know, we not only follow the rules, but we the people make up the rules. So the whole society would begin to shift to a kinder, gentler, more caring and cooperative uh, organizational levels. What that means is that whatever governments and economic systems we have, they would all start to change to reflect the new us, the new uh, higher quality beings that are creating this reality. So we would find that whatever system we had, be it capitalist or socialist or communist or whatever other ist there are out there, they would all begin to modify themselves to serve a more evolved populace. Because the people in these systems, the people running and, and populating these, these systems and, and managing these systems would also be getting kinder and more cooperative. Well, if we look, what would that look like? You see, now if we imagine a, an economic system where people were cooperative, say instead of competitive, we can't imagine it. We could say, how could you optimize so that every individual has an, the most personal freedom to do and pursue whatever it is they want to do and pursue, so they have complete freedom to do and be the way they want. And everybody has that complete freedom to do and be the way they want. And the system works and the whole system together is very um, successful. And we think of that and we say, no, that's impossible. You can't optimize everybody's potential at once because some people's optimization is somebody else's loss. You see, somebody else's de-optimization. But that's just because we think from the viewpoint of beings that are, that are uh, full of fear, full of ego. If we really were beings that were full of love, that had evolved to be about other, then that wouldn't be the case. You can optimize all these individuals and the system itself, and yet still have everybody being able to, to, be, uh, to, you know, to choose what they do and how they do it and that sort of thing. So though it seems impossible, uh, a 
system would would uh, become indeed more of a utopian system as the people in it become higher quality. In fact, all of our economic systems, capitalism and socialism and communism are all utopian systems. They were all generated by utopian thinkers. If we just, everybody did this and thought this way, it would be wonderful. There wouldn't be any crime and hate and all the wars would go away and everything would be wonderful. That's a, they're utopian systems. If you just let, you know, Adam Smith's invisible hand, you know, manipulate things and so on, that we all could live happy together and, and uh, it'd be wonderful. All these utopian systems don't work for the same reason. They're populated by very imperfect, very high ego, you know, very uh, high fear people. And if they're populated by these kinds of people, then they turn into systems. They turn into economic systems and political systems that are that are being driven by fear and by ego and greed and all the other things that we see because the population is driven by fear and ego and greed. So they reflect us. As we change, they change. So it wouldn't matter what economic system you used to have, if the population began to grow up and evolve its quality, all those institutions and economic and political systems would all evolve along as well because they are part of us. They reflect us and they would all end up being pretty much the same thing, which would be a system based on cooperation and caring about other. So the key here is that you have to get the population, you have to get the individual people to be grown up, to want to grow up. If you have that, everything else takes care of itself. So the system that would most encourage people to grow up would be the system that was generated by grown up people. And that won't occur and there's no way to create that until the people grow up. Because you can't create a more grown up system, and when I say system, I mean political, economic, social systems, you can't make a more grown-up system unless it's populated by more grown-up people. So it all has to evolve together. The system and the people and their roles and interactions within it all evolve together, and we actually do end up with something that looks pretty utopian at the end. What keeps us from a utopian system is the low quality of the individuals in it. Well, that's the short answer, so I guess we'll stop there and, and uh, go on to the next one. All right, Tom. The <laughs> you next can question. a short answer coming from me. You know, <laughs> um, the next question is um, from one of the MBT forum users uh, dealing with emotions. Now, I know you have a lot of things out. You've answered a lot of questions on emotions, and you have some things out on, on YouTube. Basically, what he's asking is, what are our moods? Are we our emotions? Um, he is caught between knowing who he is he, when he's in a negative mood uh, or in a, in, a, in a good mood. Which one of these people is he really? He feels controlled by his emotions. Yes. Uh, a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people feel that they are controlled by that part of them that uh, Freud called the, the unconscious. That, that part of them is where the emotions, a lot of the emotions live, instincts live, um, that sort of thing, and that those are in control of them. Well, 
they need to take responsibility, of course, for who, who they are. And this gentleman wants to know, you know, well, who am I? Am I the happy one that, you know, has good, good feelings and emotions? Or am I the one that's, uh, you know, uh, gets upset and, uh, and uh, is, is angry? Well, you are both. The thing about emotions are, is they represent you at the being level. When what comes bubbles up out of your emotions is you. That's the core you. That's the being level you. What comes out of your intellect is the image you, the ego you, the what you'd like to believe about yourself, the way you'd like to be, but probably aren't. What comes out of your emotions, just like in your dreams. What comes out of your dreams, the way you interact in a dream is direct from the being level. You interact in a dream from the way you are. Even though you're thinking in the dream, your actions tend to be out of the being level. Now, if they're not out of the being level, we call that a lucid dream. And that's where the intellect starts to take over the dream. And now they're coming out of an intellectual level. But up until that time that the dream becomes lucid, you interact, interact out of the being level. Well, the emotions represent your being level. So if those emotions sometimes are, are a little scary and a little fearful and a little wild and angry and upset and anxious, well, that's because that's the way you are at the being level. And if those emotions sometimes are full of joy and happiness and love and caring about people, well, that's because that's the way you are. You've got all of that inside you at the being level and your emotions show different parts of it at different times. And if you can reduce the fear, if you can find anytime you're feeling that anxious moment or anger or any of the negative feelings, being upset, um, if you, whenever you feel any of those, you can trace those back to ego. Ego is always at the root of those, and at the root of ego is fear. So you can trace that negative feeling back to the, why do I feel this way? And if you say, well, I feel this way because so-and-so made me feel this way. You know, I'm angry because so-and-so made me angry. Well, so-and-so can't make you angry. You choose to be angry, and you have to take responsibility for the way you are. You choose to be angry. You could be something other than angry, but you don't choose to be that because anger is how you want to express how you feel now. You, you choose to be angry. And if you follow that negative back that, that, uh, and you don't blame it on somebody else because you have to own it, it's yours. It's your feeling and you generate it and you choose it. It's your free will choice. Then why do you choose it? Why does that make you angry? You'll find an ego. You will find a fear at the back of the end of the ego. That's what you work on. And you just need courage to overcome the fear. That's how we get rid of that. That's how we get rid of that, uh, that fear. But it's all in there. So what you're supposed to do is get rid of those fears. And as you do, that happy part of your emotions will more dominate your being. And that fear part of your feelings and emotions will have less and less to say and less and less feelings. And eventually the fear part goes away and you're just left with a being that kind of lives in a state of joy and happiness and completeness and feels fulfilled. And you have all of those good feelings and all that negative stuff is just gone. You see? So yes, you, you have it all now in you and your point of being here is to make choices so that you get less and less of the negative stuff and more and more of the good stuff.
that's what it's about. So when you have those dreams and when you have those feelings, those emotions bubble up, that's you. And own it and try to get rid of the negative part. All right, Tom, the next question from Dave um, is specifically directed at you. Um, he wants to know your your views on everyday mundane stuff, the stuff in life, your dress, your taste. What does your taste in objects, dress, appearance, and hobbies have to do with your quality of being? And does that have anything to do with our entropy, state of entropy? Sure. All those things have to do with your quality of being. You, you express yourself. You are you. You are just that person we just talked about. You have these, you know, these feelings. And if they're not all love and peace, then there's also some negative stuff. There's anxiety and upset and anger and all that stuff. And that's who you are. And you express yourself, who you are, in your surroundings. You express it in, in uh, how you look, clothes you wear, you know, the, the way you decorate your house. I mean, everything that you touch part of the expression of you touches that thing and organizes it and creates it in such a way that it expresses you at the being level. Now, if you're expressing the you at the intellectual level, then you don't necessarily relate to the house you live in or the decorations you put in it. You just saw it in a magazine and thought it looked nice. So you're, you're putting it in there out of your intellect because you want to seem urbane or cool or something. So you, you, you do things and then that's just your image is not you but most of us are like that most of us are fairly genuine in the in surrounding ourselves with people and with things and objects and art and whatever that uh, that expresses us and we dress and the way we you know grow our hair and the way we you know just do everything that we do is an expression of how we see ourselves and how we are and, and uh, our feelings. So yeah, it does show. So you can look at people and just you know get a lot of information about them just by seeing how they live, how they interact, what they do, and so on. It's all part of the expression of us. Sure. So you know, I don't know. That doesn't mean you know I. As far as my my appearance, you know, you're asking about me. You know, I don't dress in you know in strange clothes. I don't wear a pointy tinfoil hat. You know, I don't do things that are uh, you know that attract a lot of attention. Uh, I don't uh, you know smoke cigars. You know, I generally pretty pretty clean living the environment. Uh, you know, I have a lot of art in my house. Uh, I live in the woods, um, and most people who would look at me. If you just kind of remote viewed me and then watched me, uh, you know, walk around and so on for a while, I would not seem all that unusual. I would seem pretty uh, unusual. If you saw me in relationship with other people, I might look a little more unusual, but still not that much. And you just wouldn't be able to tell. So you don't have to change your lifestyle or your living a whole lot to grow up. You can just kind of be the person you are and express yourself in that being and grow up. All the changes are on the inside, not on the outside. Some people have the idea that, well, to grow up, yeah, I'd like to do that, but geez, in order to do that, I'd have to quit my job because my job is just so anxiety producing and 
and so whatever, and just get in a fair, I have to quit my job, you know, I'd have to get out of my relationship, you know, I had to give away all my dogs, I'd have to go be a monk someplace, and then maybe I could have a spiritual life if I was going to be a monk. That's not true. All those are excuses. You can have a spiritual life and do everything that you do, still be, you know, uh, in the same lifestyle and in the same kind of situation that you are. All the changes are on the inside. They don't have to be on the outside. So a, a very spiritual person can be somebody who's wearing bib overlock, you know, bib overhauls and uh, has a corn cob pipe, or it could be somebody who wears robes, or it could be somebody that, um, you know, has a bald head or has long hair down their back. You know, it could be anybody because the appearance isn't the thing. The appearance does tell you something about the individual, but it doesn't tell you the quality of that individual. It tells you more about the personality of that individual. And people of quality can have all kinds of personalities. They all don't develop the same personality, which gets us into one final thing, and that is sometimes people have the idea that when you're very grown, you you float above it all. You uh, no longer have passion. You no longer get excited. You no longer, everything is just, you know, everything's ho-hum. You become uh, kind of withdrawn from the everyday world because you're just floating above it because you're really too good to be in it. You know, it's one of those things. And it's not like that at all. As you grow up, you need to get engaged in the world. You need to grab hold of the world and become a part of it. You need to interact with people. If you're just floating up above it, then that's your ego telling you that you're better than other people. You just, you need to get connected. That's why you're here. That's where our experiences and our opportunities to make choices come from is our interaction and engagement with the world and with other people in the world. So you can still be, uh, you can be very grown up and very evolved and still be a very passionate person. Still have feelings and emotions and all this stuff. Lots of passion. You don't have to be just kind of a, 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 you know, like a robot because you no longer have negative passion. Well, you have positive passion. You love, you care deeply, you connect. All of that is good stuff. It's not like you just, you know, some people have the idea that when you're growing up, you're like a robot. You know, you go through life and you, you never laugh, you never cry. Nothing ever bothers you. You're totally, what do we call it, detached from everything. Well, you don't want to detach from everything. You want to detach from the fear. You want to detach from the ego. But you want to embrace the love and the caring and the cooperation. And in order to embrace love and caring and cooperation, you got to interact with people. See?